Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This conversation is with Mila Lukic. Mila is the chief executive and co-founder of Bridges Outcomes Partnerships, which is a social enterprise operating in the social investment space. Now, before you conclude that this will all be about finance and financing mechanisms, there is a little bit of that. But what this conversation is really about is how to encourage innovation in public services. Now, I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of social impact bonds and outcomes based commissioning. And we do talk about what that is. And Mila does explain very expertly what those things are. But the focus of the conversation is about what's the best way to deliver public services that actually respond to the real world and the real needs of people and have the ultimate outcome you're trying to achieve for an individual at the heart of the whole process rather than a contract that has a set of inputs essentially which are quite rigid and don't adjust over time as the world changes and a person's need changes. Personally I think the concepts that Mila describes in this conversation should be adopted as widely as possible so I think this should be of great interest to anybody delivering and designing public services. So let's hear from Mila. Mila, a very warm welcome on the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I think we've known each other for quite a few years now, but for those listening who might not know who you are, could you just introduce yourself? No, pleasure. Um, so I'm Mila. I head up um, Bridges Athens Partnerships. And yes, it's an absolute delight to be here. Thank you for the invite, Andrew. I have been doing this now for the last 10 years, and we will talk a bit more about um, what Bridge Laskins Partnerships does, but um, it, it has been a pleasure to work alongside a number of really brilliant socially motivated organizations and outcome commissioners um, to help prevent homelessness, help families stay together, 
um, help people improve their health, um, help children improve their educational outcomes. And most recently, we have been trying to figure out how to um, use these outcomes-focused models to help both people and the planet. Um, and yes, we will hopefully talk more about that later. We will, we will absolutely. But before that, what background do you have that you brought to this? Because I imagine you, you didn't you know, come out of university and say, right, OK, I'm going to work in social investment. No, not at all. Um, no, I, well, I'm a scientist by training um, and I went on um, to do research focusing on um, drugs which are actually orphan drugs. So drugs which are, which exist for diseases which are really rare and it's not um, commercially viable to commercialize those types yes. of drugs. And the only way that you can um, do that is by having partnerships with um, the government and figuring out how to make the whole drug um, process, research and development um, more effective and cheaper. Uh, I did that because of the fact that I had some family members die from um, such diseases and I was really interested in um, initially medical research to make them happen, but then very quickly realized that it is the partnerships between different stakeholders which can make them happen. Um, I then went on to work for, uh, well, advising pharma industry in trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and I was realizing that that's not the only way to create uh, to create change. And so then I uh, spent some time working for the public sector to try to understand from the other side how you can design some of those policies. Um, uh, and again, I was thinking, well, actually, I'm still not finding the answers. So let's try to look at things from the social enterprise lens. And so then I ran social enterprise, which was focusing on providing scholarships for young people in developing countries, uh, again, uh, by finding ways to catalyze um, work between um, or to catalyze funding between students and donors who are wanting to fund those scholarships. Um, and it was from all of those different experiences that I started feeling, um, well, I had the feeling all along, but I started feeling even more strongly about the potential to find ways to bring together the different stakeholders with the different tools um, and to find ways to create support for uh, really difficult problems in more effective ways. And so that's how I then started working in Bridges with then um, ongoing focus on outcomes Work and well, partnerships, which I didn't—I—I I didn't know that about you that you, you had a, a science background, and it, it's very interesting actually because all the way along you've clearly been focused on solving problems and finding sustainable funding solutions for things that aren't that might not necessarily have a pure market solution. Yeah, I, I strongly feel that there are a number of really difficult problems which do require which do require quite a number of interesting interventions to make, um, yeah. to make them, uh, well, to find answers to them. <laughs> yeah, no, fantastic. Well, we will definitely get into all of this. Um, we really appreciate that little bit of background there. So um, I want to talk about Bridges Outcomes Partnership now. So Bridges is, a, I think it's a, it's a larger kind of family of organizations almost. And, and I know that you founded and lead Bridges Outcomes Partnership. But how is Bridges organized and what role does Bridges Outcomes Partnership play in that? Um, so Bridges Outcomes Partnerships, so we are a not-for-profit social enterprise. And as I said, we focus on partnering with um, local 
commissioners and central governments and um, socially motivated delivery organizations to basically create um, delivery which is focused on outcomes and which is focused on helping most vulnerable people with really thorny issues that require really personalized approaches. Um, we have been founded out of a broader work of Bridges Fund Management, or initially Bridges Ventures, um, and Bridges, uh, Venture, Bridges Ventures initially, or Bridges Community Ventures, and then subsequently Bridges Fund Management, um, was founded uh, 20 years ago, exactly. Um, and it was founded out of a Cabinet Office Task Force uh, recommendation to create a pool of funding which is investing in underserved areas of the UK. Um, and since then, Bridges has been investing in solutions that supports transition to a more inclusive and sustainable economy um, and has been doing that with a clear conviction that building a better future for people and the planet is also a unique opportunity to create lasting economic value. Um, and so Bridges started doing that through support of businesses, so mm -hmm. socially um, driven, impactful businesses um, through thematic properties. And then in 2008, um, it started supporting um, social sector organizations, and that's actually emerged from a specific work, again, across the government, where across government there was a desire to widen the pool of organizations who could participate in delivery of public services, yes. um, particularly with the focus on supporting local social enterprises closer to their communities who can be more flexible and more dynamic, you know, bringing real enthusiasm to that continuous innovation to improve the effectiveness uh, and value um, for money of public services. And so it was then that the Office for Civil Society basically um, launched a range of options like Future Builders, like Adventure Capital and others. Um, and then they realized that actually a lot of that funding was basically that funding, loan funding, which has, you know, limits in terms of its flexibility. Yeah. And there was a need to create more equity-like funding. Um, and that is when the Office for Civil Society basically dedicated 3.3 million to create a social or to seed a social entrepreneurs fund, which they ran a selection for and Bridges was selected to be the manager of that fund. So that's how the, the social sector work started. Um, yeah. And that was back in 2008. And then in 2011, we started the work, which is fully focused on, on outcomes um, and contracts within that sphere. That's really interesting. So really what we're talking about here is as the spectrum of organizations that can deliver the public services widens is, is what you're essentially doing. Now, I understand that it would have started with some government funding, but is, is the idea to try and bring private funding in to support the delivery of public services while still generating a reasonable return for those investors? Is it, is it trying to bring all of that together? Yeah, I think, well, I think the first, the first thing is the, so that's, so the Social Entrepreneurs Fund very much the vision was with the seed funding from the Office for Civil Society was to create, to kickstart the work, but then to find, yes, to find much funding from equally socially motivated investors. So it is really, really important that all of the investors are driven by the same um, impact vision and social vision. Um, and we're doing that with the view that it is both the system change that is being created, but also the direct impact which they are facilitating. Now, with the with the seed funding that um, was being provided, what the Office for Civil Society was achieving was basically 
a setting of the terms of the funds. So setting really clearly um, what those um, terms of, you know, what is the impact that needs to be created and um, what those terms look like. And really what they were saying is, you know, if you do achieve that impact, then yes, there should be, a, a, you know, there should be a reward for that impact. And the the government funding would benefit from it as well. So it was very much akin to a lot of the work that Mariana Matsukato is mm. writing about in terms of how to stimulate that innovation and how to create uh, aligned incentives in terms of the rewards, which are then reaped by the government as well in terms of the the results which are being achieved. Um, but what we what we realized very quickly was, and what I specifically realized when I started working on that social entrepreneurs fund initially was that actually the majority of the social enterprises and charities which we were supporting they had you know local authorities or central government as their primary customer. Of course, they had individuals as their key constituents, but in terms of the contracting, they had the government as the primary customer. And mm. so the extent of change that could be driven within the organization was quite limited because, you know, if you are, for example, a domiciliary care organization, which is meant to deliver appointments, you know, care appointments for people three times a day, 15 yeah. minutes long, the change that you can create within that structure is limited because you still need to act in the way that the contract asks you to act. And so even if you believe that some of the long-term outcomes for people would be better if you rearrange the service, you cannot do that because you are not able to change um, the nature of the contract that you have. And so that's why I personally got really excited about the potential of creating an environment where you are bringing both the flexible funding to enable flexible delivery, but you're also creating flexible contracts which tell you, you know, your only task is to create a better life for this individual. And it's entirely up to you to figure out how to do that. I will not tell you that you have to do, you know, three appointments a day or whatever the detail specification says. So that's that's where the shift from just providing flexible funding to organizations to also finding ways to create flexible contracted contracting emerged. That's really interesting, and we will come to that and how it's structured. But just before I do, where does most of your funding come from? I know that we've talked about some of the seed funding and some of the other things, but just to to give people a general idea when they have a conversation with Bridges or Bridges Outcomes Partnerships about about funding, where's that money come from? Yeah, so, so it comes from a number of, as I said, a number of socially motivated um, organizations which are looking, which are motivated to improving lives and changing the system for the better like we are, and that includes the Office for Civil Society, Asma Fairbairn Foundation, Bridges Impact Foundation, um, Big Society Capital, uh, Pilot Lights, Trust for London, basically a number of, well, either dedicated organizations like Big Society Capital or um, foundations which have, or organizations like European Investment Fund as well, who have uh, or which have dedicated mandates to basically create this Great. impactful delivery. And then, do you, as an organization, do you then apply for that funding or bid for it, or is, or is it just negotiated, or how, how does it end up with you with freedom to invest it? Yeah, so we are, so as I said, for the, very, for the Social Entrepreneurs Fund, that was a selection process run by the um, Office for Civil Society, um, which it's a tender, yeah. It's a tender, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we, and then it was our job to raise matched funding for that seed funding from other organizations with the same, 
um, mission to catalyze innovation. Um, then the the next again pool of funding was a selection by Big Society Capital, who again realized similarly to Office for Civil Society, where you know Office for Civil Society identified a gap. In this case, Big Society Capital identified a gap of having a pooled um, fund focusing on supporting primarily outcomes-based um, delivery. Um, and then subsequently, um, we looked to um, do the same work. And again, that was seeded initially by Big Study Capital with a number of um, matched um, investments, yeah. uh, commitments from, from others. Yeah. So I've previously had Nick Temple from the social investment business, who I know you will know, who has explained what a social impact bond is. So I'm going to, we're going to take, make the assumption that our listeners have listened to that one and understand what that is. Is that the main tool that you use in Bridges Outcomes Partnerships or are there other things that you use? Yeah, no, and I, I would, if I may, I would love to just share a bit of the evolution, if you will, of how some of the social impact bonds concept evolved, if you will. Um, because it is it is that as a term has been used by many projects in potentially um, in potentially misleading ways. And I guess from, from our perspective, initially when the the term social impact bonds emerged very first time in a social venturing book by uh, by the Young Foundation and Nesta, um, it was very much introduced as a mechanism to basically try and test um, approaches where the government could be persuaded to come together and pay for what the outcomes are actually worth. Um, so jointly across a number of departments and, you know, test what are the approaches which would allow you to um, achieve that ultimate outcome. Um, now, what we've experienced actually over the years is that um, uh, Tim Gray, one of the one of the brilliant individuals we've been working with over the years, um, has actually, as as a civil servant within uh, MSCLG and the local government, has very quickly realized that in the areas of homelessness, mental health, really, really complex areas, it is really um, hard to try to get, well, it's really hard to try to get the government to pay for what the, for, for what the outcome is ultimately worth. Um, yes. Because actually, you know, that is, 10, 15, 20 times, 100 times what the price um, sometimes is. And actually what's needed and what the, what the VCC sector has been trying out for years is a way of creating personalized approaches. And so really the main focus is, and the, the vast majority of projects in the UK is very much focused on creating milestones which track progress towards the ultimate outcome of, you know, somebody is safe in their home or somebody is uh, having better health, um, and those outcomes do not need to be paid, you know, 10 times more to deliver the service. They just need, um, the organizations delivering them just need the freedom to innovate and redesign and figure out what are the approaches that actually work. And so that's the key change. So it's not, it's not necessarily, you know, getting people to pay for the outcomes of what they actually worth or getting um, the, the, the proven approaches scaled up which is what has happened quite a lot in the U.S. It is simply about finding a, a series of milestones, very personalized milestones, which can help create freedom for the delivery organizations to 
um, to to do such work. And so from our perspective, those are the principles that we look for in projects that we deliver. So it's not so much, you know, it's not about the investment and it's not about the structure because that will very much depend on the context and the investment is there simply as an enabling factor for the ideas of social entrepreneurs who have had those ideas all along but have been prevented from implementing yeah. them because of some of the structural barriers. Um, yeah. And so for us, what we look for is ensuring that that ability to really have very collaborative design, to have that flexible delivery and to have clear as possible accountability for improving people's lives, that's what we look for in the structure um, or in the project rather than a particular structure. No, I, I'm really pleased that you explained that because that um, that's something that a few people on the podcast, including Chris Wright from, from Catch-22, have highlighted that traditional commissioning, it's so rigid and, you know, you must do X, Y, and Z, and it's all about inputs really rather than the free pursuit of outcomes where you can move very with great agility away from things that you've tried that don't work. You can try something else. And I, I, I just, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And I think, um, I, I think it's a really important innovation. So you have really started talking about what was going to be my next question about what you look for in projects. So it's that, that kind of commissioner who's, who's willing to allow innovation and flexibility and will possibly have some patience even about uh, just waiting for these milestones to come and then assessing it at that point. I, I imagine getting the right commissioner is really important. Yeah, and I think it is, I would say it's not necessarily getting the right commissioner. I think it is establishing that vision of let's all think about what the art of the possible is and let's yeah. think about, you know, what are those problems that one feels like intuitively, you know, the solution for um, but you are not able necessarily to implement it because actually the comfortable thing is to prescribe and specify what a service um, needs to look like. And so giving away that, um, that control um, and creating a situation where everybody is focusing on that ultimate vision, which is let's make sure that somebody is not homeless in two years time. Um, it, it's really, it's important to establish that shared vision. And I guess in our experience thus far, um, we've seen um, a lot of a lot of people want to do that. And so yeah. I think it is just about finding um, finding ways to um, to implement that. However, there are some really clear barriers, and that is specifically in relation to the infrastructure of how the funding works at the moment and how most of the funding is allocated, which is related to both the ability to create co-payment for outcomes when you are trying to work on outcomes which are, you know, which need a very holistic approach and when you're also trying to create some of that timing flexibility um, because yeah. you're not necessarily achieving everything in a given year. You you need the, the flexibility of somebody going through that journey of, um, achieving different things um, in different points in time. So there are some, so it's not so much about um, uh, selecting um, people. I think the enthusiasm is there. I think it's about finding ways to deal with some of the infrastructural barriers which do not necessarily foster yeah. um, and enable. That's very interesting to what you made about co-payments when you've got a number of different organizations with you know different budgetary systems and different time scales around budgets and yeah that 
can be extremely complicated. Um, I want to talk a little bit about scale. So, I mean, I imagine a lot of your interactions and arrangements are, are at the council level, but is that the right kind of scale to do it? Are, are you quite excited by the emergence of more combined authorities, which are a slightly bigger scale, or what's the right scale for these type of things? Yeah, and it, I mean, I think it's I think it's the balance of you want to create the just like you are trying to create a service which is entirely personalized to each individual that then you, you know goes <laughs> you, when you step it up level a level you want to create a service which is most personalized for the context and for the area so you you do want to have kind of the smallest unit um, of uh, how and what the specific needs are and you want to have a system, an ecosystem which enables you to to do that so kind of the default of creating something which is as local as possible is probably what we would advocate for. Um, but then, of course, you, you are wanting to um, do that in a way whereby you are trying to um, create kind of the infrastructure which enables you to have to support more people with those personalized approaches. And so I do think that there is um, potential to think about how to create some of that backbone, if you will, in terms of partnership coordination on a combined authority level, but then think about how to continue being true to that unit of entirely personalized service for for the individual wanting to to use that service. So I think it's balancing that, keeping an eye very clearly on it needs to, you know, whatever is being put in place needs to have the ability to be fully individualized to, to what's yeah. what people and what each individual wants, um, but creating enough of a backbone so that you are able to do that effectively to, to more people. That's really interesting. And then just what about the big focus areas? So you've already talked about different categories of vulnerable people like homeless people or people with mental health challenges, but I presume you're thinking about things like net zero and a whole range of different things. Yeah, we are, but to, to, we have been primarily focused on social issues and specifically human services. Um, so it is in terms of how to think about the specific um, environmental outcomes, we are looking, well, we're looking at it two ways. So one is in terms of thinking about the, the network of partners, um, uh, fantastic partners we're working with, and, you know, that being over 140 different social enterprises and charities and a number of different commissioners and thinking about how within that um, community, what are the things that we can collectively do which can contribute to, um, to, to positive environmental outcomes and transitions. So that's not necessarily as a, um, as kind of separate projects, but it is within the partnerships which are already there. So that's one aspect of work. And that is earlier on in our thinking, but it is definitely something that we're trying to work through. Um, And then the second part is looking at specific projects which are um, focused on creating um, both positive environmental outcomes, but with a really clear um, social justice and social focus. So not only thinking about how to um, create something that is bettering the environment but thinking about you know how do you create a resilient community around it um, and what do you need to do in terms of the support for that community um, mm. to, to have that um, just transition if you if you want to use that term yeah um and 
there's so many different angles to this, so I've got a load of questions here if you don't mind. But I, uh, Mutual Ventures, my organisation does quite a bit of work with government and working with government on the way that they fund innovation in public services, which I know I know Bridges have have engaged in those programmes as well because I've worked I've worked with you on them. Um, I was just wondering how you feel that uh, the government funding element of this. You know, you mentioned. Mazzucato earlier, and I know that she's a big fan of entrepreneurial government and, and, you know, government putting up some of the risky, risky capital up front. And I know that this government, particularly in the, the Department for Education, has, has tried that, has tried to do that. So it's just, um, I, I'm interested in your take as to how government funding dovetails with funding from other sources that you might bring. Yeah. And I think it is. So I think the interesting part is when you think about the social investment funding, what what one has there is a dedicated patient pool of funding, which is there for, you know, 10, 12 years, let's say, and can look at projects on that time scale. So can support and say, well, actually, you know, I, I do recognize that to shift the dial on how people manage long term conditions, you do need you know, a minimum seven year effort, let's say. And so, so I think that is the, the fact that you do have dedicated pools of social investment funding, which is saying that and is saying if we're there to help stimulate um, social innovation. And we recognize that that needs to be done over a long term period of time, I think is a, a real positive and is really interesting. On the other side, I think I mean, obviously, I have a very biased view <laughs> because of the work that I do. But I think what can be done from the government's perspective is precisely what they have done still at a small scale, because thus far, if you think about, um, you know, if you think about kind of projects which which have been referred to as social outcomes partnerships or social impact bonds or whatever you want to call them, that that is still only about, you know, half a billion of total um, funding and so, yeah, so still a very small marketplace exactly but when you look at the innovation when you look at the social innovation which is emerging from many of the projects where you are where really the only change from the government's perspective is the recognition that you're unleashing local very localized very socially entrepreneurial responses if you allow people to, you know, people in communities to really say what they want and how they want yeah. to do it. And, you know, from government's perspective, of course, it can be really scary to say, well, here is just a pot of funding and you figure out what you do with it. So from government's perspective and from Treasury's perspective, you do keep the level of control because you're saying, and, you know, I want these ultimate outcomes delivered, but it's entirely up to you as to how you want to do it. So I think that, in my experience, has then created really powerful innovation and social innovation in the responses which are emerging. And so from my perspective, obviously, <laughs> what would be a way to to stimulate um, more of that innovation is to create that environment where, you know, from local authorities' perspective or from central government's perspective, you're not, particularly from central government's perspective, you're not kind of prescribing in a great level of detail what the different areas should be doing and what the solution is. So rather than saying, you know, I've done the research, I think this is the solution. I've now written a really detailed specification and now I'm inviting the 
everybody trying to implement that detailed specification yes. or inviting people to tell me, you know, who can implement that specification at, on cheapest terms, you know, that doesn't devolve the power to the individual or the control to the, individ- to the individual so that they are in control of their own lives. If you can flip that upside down and if you can say, well, actually, what we all, the shared vision, the shared goal that we have is an individual being empowered and in control of their own life and deciding how they want services organized yes. around them. And if you then invite, you know, local uh, organizations to, to tell you and uh, to come up with best possible solutions to do that, you know, that can really stimulate quite powerful responses. Um, and I think, you know, and there is, there is a big role for the government to play in terms of commissioning in that way. But, but I think there are, and what I would be really curious to, to explore and to hear, you know, yours and others views on is how do you deal with some of the structural barriers that yeah. would, you know, if removed would really improve the, the effectiveness and the impact of a lot of the human services uh, funding. Gosh, that's a really good question, and I, I do have some thoughts on it, but then I just want to, to paint the picture for our, our, our listeners. So a traditional tender comes out from a council. It says in great detail what it wants delivered, and organisations are free to respond to that. If they want, they'll put in around the same amount of effort. The type of arrangement we're talking about here, where the specification is less defined, it's more the outcomes. There's, there's obviously, it feels like there's a lot more work needs to go on from yourselves as the funder and the provider organization in order to get to a point where you're signing a contract with a council. How is that normally arranged? Does there still need to be a, some sort of procurement competition or are there ways around that? Because it feels like the amount of effort is greater than uh, just a normal you know, tender response. Why, why do you think so? Um, well, do you, do you not have to design an approach rather than just responding to, I mean, maybe it's not more work, actually. Maybe it's freer. Yeah. Maybe it's freer. Okay, fine. Yeah, no, that, that's a good challenge. I, I, I accept that. So, so a council might, might actually tender for this type of arrangement and say that we, we want to commission this as, as an outcome. Okay, right. Okay. Just, and I guess then the environment of how that, you know, what does the ongoing contract management look like is also different because it's not necessarily, you know, yes, you have a starting point of what the approach could look like, but really what, what one is doing ongoingly is looking at, well, actually, what we're implementing, is it really working? Should it be changed? Of course, it can be changed because you do have the freedom to do that versus in a more traditional procurement where the specification would tell you what to do. And so if you do want to change it, everybody is really worried about procurement challenge potentially. Um, so, so it is a different dynamic which gets created in terms of how collectively all of the partners are looking at what the delivery could look like and how to ongoingly I see. I see. implement and redesign the services and think about how to um, achieve most most impact for for each individual. Understood. No, I appreciate you explaining that. Thank you. I agree, actually, now <laughs> on hearing it. So I'd like to talk a little bit about risk appetite. So obviously, as the funder, you're, you're taking a risk, um, a calculated risk, no doubt. But how do you assess whether an idea is worthy of support because presumably there is 
always some element of risk there that the outcome might not be achieved. Yeah, well, I think what we so so of course of course there is, but I think what we focus on primarily is ma- analyzing and making sure that the the milestones which are there and the overall framework of what one is focusing on in terms of goals and milestones that those things are really enabling that personalized response. So you know, if you say that actually. You know, if you have a menu of options of entering and keeping accommodation, entering and keeping employment, you know, improving mental well-being, improving physical well-being, really thinking about um, a number of different options which do allow for that personalized journey, almost like choose your own adventure um, approach for each individual. That is the bit that we focus on. So it's not so much the approach, because the approach will always change and, you know, it, and it should change because over, you know, five, seven, eight years, depending on what the length of the project is, context changes, circumstances, you know, different services, the system around individuals, all of that changes. So to assume that you will deliver exactly the same thing, uh, you know, day one and at the end of year seven is that's just not the reality of it. And if you're doing that, then you're doing something wrong. So, so it's the belief and the conviction that actually those shared goals and what we're all targeting is indeed the right thing for the individual. Then the, you know, the comfort that the structure around it will really allow for that ongoing flexible delivery and yeah. will really allow for also reaching out into the system to, you know, change things if needed within the overarching system as well, not just in direct delivery. Um, and so if those things are indeed in place, and if it is genuinely a collaborative partnership across all stakeholders, then those are the critical points. That that, that's form. really interesting. So a key part of your risk management approach is the ability to make in-flight adjustments, if you like, to how things are going. If, if it's quite clear that one route's not working, let's get our heads together and try something else, that type of yeah, and, and not not us, but the teams delivering yes, of course. The, the services and the individuals wanting to use those services. So it is very much creating a situation where, you know, everybody can very loudly explain um, and share, you know, what is um, what is working for them, what's not working for them. And it is, I mean, for example, a social prescribing delivery in Grimsby, there the the overall setup was very much with the well uh, support for people with long-term conditions where the GPs were identifying individuals with long-term conditions who needed support and the GPs were feeling frustrated historically with the level of support that they could offer to those individuals Um, and so there was a a view of um, a particular service which which could allow those personalized approaches but it did involve relying on some of the existing social enterprise provision in the area. But what emerged very quickly was that people actually wanted different sets of activities than what the, the social enterprises had to offer. And so individuals um, who were actually on the program wanted to organize themselves into different groups and activities yeah. and create their own social mini social enterprises to do that. And that's the support that the program then allowed rather than only relying on some of the provision which already existed. And I think it's enabling precisely that, which is which is really powerful and is incredibly impactful when you then see the results of that and see how motivated and, and empowered people feel 
when they have the avenue and the platform to do that. Yeah, I completely get that. I think that's really well explained. Thank you. I really want to ask you this next question. This is something which I'm very, very interested in. So I'm reading a lot about venture capital at the minute and about how the kind of great innovations of our age are funded. And the whole venture capital system is very, it's obviously completely, well, you can tell me, I see it as quite different from operating in public services because if you're a venture capital fund, you can invest in 10 things. Uh, Nine might not work, one will work, but it will work to many multiples of return and that makes everything else worthwhile and you can afford to plant all of those seeds. Whereas when when you're dealing with public services, it strikes me there are two challenges there if you're trying to replicate that sort of model, which I'm not suggesting we should, but it is a model which generates really groundbreaking ideas. One is that the financial return on public services is never going to be the same as investing in Google or something. You know, it, it just isn't going to have that growth and return. The other thing is uh, just about how a lot of public services, particularly the commissioners, the leaders who run public services are more risk averse. Um, you know, if a social media platform it doesn't work, it doesn't really impact people's lives that much. Whereas if a new approach to homelessness doesn't work, then that maybe does have have a bigger impact. So I'm just really interested to get your view on, on how investment in innovation really drives new ideas rather than just the scaling up of ideas that have already been proven to work, if that makes sense. I mean, I think you, you have answered to an extent, the, the, or clarified to an extent, the point of the differences and what are the differences which which cannot why you cannot necessarily draw parallels entirely but I guess the part that I do think is um, important and one can think about important parallels is in relation to iteration change and innovation and I think that's the bit that is core to how one designs a venture and you know, one designs it with a clear conviction yeah. of what is the ultimate kind of vision and outcome that one is trying to achieve. Um, but is the process of getting to that point requires a lot of, well, relentless listening to your customers um, yeah. and ongoing iteration in terms of what, you know, what people want and how. And you are then operating within an ecosystem where your, you know, your customers are wanting something that is continuously better continuously cheaper um, and continuously evolving to meet the the different preferences and needs that people have. And I guess I think those are the principles which we should keep in mind. So it's not, you know, one never says, okay, I will come up with the best possible phone and then just implement it forever because that is the answer. So I think it's the principle of, no, you can always do things better and why shouldn't you require, you know, why shouldn't you demand aim from human services? So it's not about identifying the solution, if you will. It is about creating an ecosystem and an environment where you can continuously improve on that solution and do and do so in ways where the people who are, um, you know, using your offer um, are really saying what they want and desi- designing what that looks like. I think that's really interesting, actually, and it, it comes back to something you were saying earlier about creating the flexibility within the delivery model to change things is I think a, a lot of providers are trapped in a in a contract that doesn't have any flexibility 
and therefore no room to improve or make tweaks that might enhance outcomes, never mind any incentive to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So thinking about the broader context now, so what are some of the key key developments or changes, if there are any, which you think might help encourage a stronger focus on outcomes and that environment of flexibility and specifically around human-focused services? I, I mean, I think it's, on one hand, there is the recognition that you do need to do that um, and then thinking about how to um, really in very practical terms, because there is a lot of rhetoric and recognition that personalized, localized support is what makes a real difference and what people really want. And that's positive. That's great. Um, in parallel, there is more focus on shifting the, the way budgets are allocated to so the fact that central departments had to come up with delivery outcome plans and in theory use those in spending review bits mm. is really good. However, you know, the, there is still from, and obviously I have a very limited outside view, but from what I can see, it's still not, although kind of the principles are being outlined in real life, the two are not entirely married together. So I mm. think what would be great is to either find ways to create more flexibility in how some of the annual budgeting is done so that you can create more of a ability to focus on outcomes, recognizing the variability that comes with that and recognizing that you cannot have, you know, by doing that, you will not have a set budget in year one, year two, year three. You will have, you know, an amount in year one and then you will have a different amount in year three because individuals have traveled through their journey towards that ultimate um, towards that ultimate outcome. And so if, if there could be recognition and, and, you know, infrastructural change to to allow for that, that would be huge. That's obviously the big change in terms of how the government works. Even just about time length, you know, because only up until very recently, councils didn't know what their budget was going to be next year, never mind three, no, five years down the line. Precisely. And I think, and I guess with that, it is, you know, why are some of those changes possible and easier with physical infrastructure? Because you do have, you know, you in many cases, in terms of how physical infrastructure projects are supported, they are done over much longer timeframes. Why can we not do the same for social infrastructure? So, you know, there are already some precedents for how things could be organized so that they are a bit more long-term focused and are then hopefully also moving towards, uh, well, uh, the first step are a bit more long-term focused. I think the, the point around I- introducing variability and flexibility in mm. terms of funding year to year, I think the only answers seem to be on relatively small scale. So I think that's the bit yeah. that really needs to be figured out and it would be great to, um, it yeah. would be great to do that. And what about things like pension fund changes, that type of thing? Because I think it was the leveling up white paper talked about allowing or encouraging, I'm not sure what the terminology was, but those local government pension schemes to, to, to make some impact investing as well that might have a bit more risk attached to it. Is, is that a big moment for, for this movement? I think, I mean, I think it is. I think it's an important moment in terms of more broadly creating funding, which is impact focused. I think that, I think in our experience, the momentum of organizations recognizing and wanting to support both direct impact and kind of the, the system change which which can exist around it that yeah. hasn't been the 
the limiting factor, if you will. So I think yeah. I think it is I think it's really really important that there is more interest and more willingness and desire to support different ways of working and to really figure out how to make sure that you know all of the investment deployed is really creating positive lasting change in people's lives. So I think that it's really positive that that keeps on happening. But it feels to me like that is a journey which is moving forward and it should continue moving forward. And that's really good. Yeah. Um, but there are other constituents who also do need to kind of travel. Um, in well, the, I was, think, I was thinking that actually, you know, it, it's all very well. I think if you were to ask the question broadly to people, would you want to see big pension funds investing uh, in social impact the gut response might be, oh, yeah, of course, of course. And then if you then ask the supplementary question, but of course, if this was your pension being put at risk, would you, would you be equally keen? So, I mean, I, I think I would hope people would say yes, and I would hope people would understand that. But it's uh, unlocking those really big funds, I think, could, could have a huge impact. But I think you raise a number of good points as to the rhetoric is great, but how does it actually get implemented? So... As a final question, Mila, and I ask this of everybody, what, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise or in social investment who wants to make the sort of impact that you've managed to make? And you certainly have, because I know the work that you've done over the years. Well, what bit of advice would you give to them? <laughs> I never feel in a position to give <laughs> sort of advice. <laughs> but, no, I think, I think on a personal level, it is the relentless optimism and and really recognizing that in many cases it feels like we're all pushing water uphill <laughs> because you know all all hard problems are are hard so i think it is really keeping the 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 positivity and the optimism to to keep <laughs> oneself and everybody around you going so i think that is on a personal level i think that's something that that i find important uh, and, and then with that, it's also not to get discouraged when one talks about, you know, we need to change the way all of the contracting works and we need to change the way the treasury works. And that all feels really hard and demotivating. And actually, yes, all of those are very long term efforts. But then in the current moment, we should all do what we can with what we have where we are. And that that is the mantra that I've heard yeah. um, leaders that I admire say. And I, I think that certainly really resonates with with me. Well, Mila, I'm very reassured that there are people like you working on this and trying to really drive better outcomes. And uh, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Wow, what a fascinating discussion that was. I want to draw out some of the fundamental concepts of our discussion there. So the first is the importance of focusing on outcome rather than process and inputs. And I thought it was very interesting how Mila described that the main element of developing an outcomes-based contracting arrangement is not what will be done to support a person, but the milestones that you're trying to help that vulnerable person achieve over time. And this means that the provider of the service needs the ability to be flexible in what they do. So what do they do with that flexibility? Well, they should iterate. They should constantly be learning about what works about the service they're providing and what doesn't work. And as Mila said, this is one of the important parallels which can be drawn with traditional venture capital. 
In that world, innovation is supported through a mechanism of funding rounds where as progress is made or as milestones are achieved, extra funding is then sought. And this is very similar. Once a person who a service is supporting reaches certain milestones, then uh, elements of funding are then released. So it, it does reflect quite closely, I think. A key element in all of this is relentlessly listening to service users. These are the people who will understand much better than anyone whether the service they are receiving is working for them or not. I mean, it would clearly be impossible to go through the iteration process without this. The final point I want to make is about time and the need for commissioners and funders to have patience. These are very difficult problems. You know, Mila was talking about supporting a homeless person to get back into society and to engage in the economy. This is not something which can be done in one year. This needs time and needs effort or else it's just going to come back round again and we'll be facing exactly the same problems and local authorities and other funders of public services will be under the same financial pressure, probably with the same people because that extended period of effort with all those very clearly marked out milestones hasn't been the approach. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you for your time. I hope you find it interesting and don't forget to follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn or register on the website so you don't miss any future episodes.